Well, thank you, Ryan. Thank you to those who led us in musical worship this morning. Uh, I invite you to continue to worship your Lord by opening your Bibles. Join me in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and you can find verse 35. It is not a typo in the bulletin. We're going to move from verse 35 down to the end of the chapter, verse 51, this morning. We have a lot ahead of us. Uh, and it's another first. Last week, we noticed a pretty significant first as Jesus is, for the first time, publicly, verbally declared to be his people's substitutionary atonement. Behold the Lamb of God. We have another first this morning, and that is that Jesus himself takes the stage, center stage. Uh, he was pointed at last week by John the Baptist. He has been spoken about, and as we've moved through this gospel, that has become increasingly clear. He was spoken of from the beginning of this gospel in eternal ways, in uh, even in some ways mysterious uh, designations. Then he was publicly, directly identified. And now this morning, he's going to speak. We're going to hear him speak. Men on this earth are going to hear the Lamb of God speak to them. And what we're going to find from the get-go this morning is that Jesus has an effect on the people that encounter him. Uh, I would advise you to think about it in this way as we're getting started. Often we, we think about the effect on the disciples over the course of Jesus' three years of ministry, and certainly that is worthy of notice, uh, what happens in their lives as they walk through uh, the course of his public ministry. But there's something else entirely for us to notice this morning. What we're going to see this morning is several men encounter Jesus in this passage, and the verses that we're going to look at take place, as we'll see, over the course of Something like 72 hours. So the question we could start with is simply this. What is going to be the impact of mankind interacting with Jesus for less than 72 hours? The outcome, to put it simply, will be what I've titled this message this morning, Six Revelations of Christ. And I have, I have worded it like that, intentionally vague. Six Revelations of of Christ. Are these revelations about Christ or are they revelations from Christ? And the answer in our passage this morning is yes. Uh, actually, it's three and three, and we're going to bounce back and forth. So try not to get dizzy, but what we're going to do is we're going to hear one revelation about Jesus and then one from Jesus and then one about Jesus and then one from Jesus, and we'll go back and forth that way. Six revelations of Christ. Uh, I hope you found verse 35 by now. I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version, verses 35 to 51. And if you're able, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? They said to him, Rabbi, 
which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard Jesus speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas which means Peter. The next day Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We have just a bit to do before we get to these six interactions, or rather the interactions that will produce the six revelations of Christ. There's got to be a shift that happens in the story before this can happen. Because thus far we've been hearing and focusing only on John the Baptist and his ministry and what he has been saying. So there's got to be a shift. And that shift happens in verses 35 to 39. Can I read again? Verses 35 to 37. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So John sees Jesus again the next day, and he makes the same declaration that he had made the day before in verse 29. Behold the Lamb of God. There are some things we're not told here. Did these two disciples already hear that declaration the day before? And they've spent, they've spent the last 24 hours talking together, thinking, searching, wondering what they should do? Did they miss that declaration? Were they not there? And this is the first time that they're hearing it and they're reacting immediately? We really don't know. But what we know about this day is that when they hear their teacher say this, they know what to do. And they leave John the Baptist and they follow after Jesus. I wonder, who is the more faithful disciple of John? The ones who stay with him or the ones who go to Jesus? What do you think? Certainly, I think we could say that those who 
leave him at least would have to be those who understood John's teaching the best. Because what, what we're seeing, what John is displaying in front of him is nothing short of the telos of his preparatory ministry. And those who leave in this account are Andrew and an unnamed man, an unnamed disciple of John the Baptist. Many think that that unnamed man is the Apostle John himself, the writer of this gospel. He goes out of his way to never mention himself by name in this gospel account. It would make sense if it were him. We just don't know for sure. But verse 37 tells us that there are two steps to this. Step number one, they hear John saying this about Jesus. Step number two, they followed Jesus. They followed him. Not they began to follow Jesus. Not they walked down the road after him. They followed Jesus. And even in the way that it's written, this is a, this is a completion of one season of their life and a beginning of another. Their lot is cast with Jesus from here on out. It's not an insignificant moment in their lives. And their opening interaction with Jesus is interesting. Uh, verse 38, Jesus sees them following and asks, What are you seeking? To which they reply, Teacher, where are you staying? Now, of course, that's not why they followed after him, is it? To find out the location of where he's spending the night. That's uh, not really the, their answer to his question. I... I enjoyed the way that Leon Morris described them here. He said, they may have been a trifle shy. And their words probably imply that what they wanted with him could not be settled in a few minutes by the wayside. They looked for a long talk. It's good, I think, to reflect on this moment in their lives because of the significance of the choice they've just made in uh, in leaving John the Baptist. They had made a significant choice in becoming John the Baptist's disciples in the first place. You're really casting your lot in with someone when you are doing that, when you publicly identify with a teacher. And now in a moment of trust in the wisdom and faithfulness of their teacher, they are walking away from that entire situation and are walking down the road after a man they have never met and who has never met them. They know one thing about this man, and that's that their teacher said he was of tremendous importance. The Lamb of God, he said. Do they have some questions? You bet they do. So when Jesus asks them, what are you seeking? It's not an easy question to answer. They ask him where he's staying, I think clearly hoping for an entrance into fellowship with him, into time to talk with him, to hear from him, and they're not disappointed. He invites them to come with him, and so from the 10th hour, it says, that's 4 p.m., to the end of the day, they are with Jesus, talking, asking him questions. Many think, and I agree with them, that there's a particular uh, designation, a significance in the fact that, he, that John mentions the time here, uh, as to when this is taking place. This all started at 4 p.m. I think what we're meant to understand then is that there is a new day going on in verse 41. They go with him. It's already getting late in the day. They spend the rest of the day with Jesus, talking with Jesus. And then in verse 41, there's a new day, and that next day ends when Andrew goes and finds his brother, Simon. 
Now, that's important in the timeline here um, and in my statement that we're talking about 72 hours. Here, then, is where the revelations start to come into the narrative. Remember, we're going to go uh, revelation about Jesus, from Jesus, about Jesus, and like that. You get the idea. So the first revelation we're going to hear is a revelation about Jesus. And remember to have this question in your mind all the way through our time this morning. What is the effect that we're seeing of men interacting with the Lord Jesus? In this case, what's the effect of Andrew and John, if this is John, spending less than 24 hours with Jesus? What's the effect? Verse 41. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. We looked last week at the significance of John the Baptist calling Jesus the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we noticed that he was almost certainly speaking better than he even understood at that moment. He was right in what he said about Jesus. But even he had much to learn about the significance and the truth of that statement. I think there's little doubt that Andrew here is in the same way. He, he spoke better than he even knew at this point. Because they have a long ways to go, as the ministry of Jesus is pretty, pretty clear regarding his disciples. They've got a ways to go in understanding exactly what God's anointed one, the Messiah, is being sent to do and to be. He doesn't understand that fully. That doesn't mean that this is still uh, not a significant conclusion to come to. Remember, this is the big question that all the stir about John the Baptist had produced. Could, remember, they were asking about John the Baptist. Could he be the Christ? Could he be the Messiah? However far they have to go in really understanding God's intentions with Messiah, Messiah is as big as it gets in terms of their hopes and expectations. And in less than 24 hours, Andrew can say to his brother, we have found the Christ. We have found the Messiah. What could they have talked about and heard from him and asked him? What could he have said to them that takes all the eschatological hopes of the Old Testament that they have been taught to look for and pray for and hope for? What could be said in 24 hours that would lead him to run to his brother and say, we found him. <laughs> we found him. And that's what he does. He goes and gets his brother, Simon. You notice verse 40, the author's already referring to him by his well-known name, Simon Peter, even though he's not been introduced yet as such, even though he doesn't even have that name yet. He's not been named Peter yet. But John the Apostle tells us that Andrew was Simon Peter's brother in verse 40. Andrew goes and gets his brother, Simon, and brings him to Jesus. And this prompts the second revelation in our passage, this time from Jesus. Verse 42 says, Jesus looked at him. And that's a very particular expression and statement. He gazed at Simon. I imagine him looking him up and down. And then he gave this utterance. Now it is unclear to be, to be uh, fair it's, it's, it's not completely clear whether this is supposed to be a display of supernatural knowledge, like what he's about to show with Nathaniel. That's very clear. 
Maybe Andrew already told Jesus the name of the brother he was going to, to bring to him. We're not told that. But what we're really meant to notice is the significance of the declaration that Jesus makes about this man. You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. So the Apostle John gives us both the Aramaic name, which is Cephas, and its Greek translation, which is uh, Peter, Petros. So here's an interesting question. Jesus says, you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, both of which mean rock. Hmm, question. Is Jesus declaring here a revelation about what Peter will become like personally? Like his character? Is this what Jesus is declaring in this naming? Or is he declaring something about what Peter's role will wind up being in establishing the church? It's a really interesting question. Both of them would certainly be true. Uh, and we're not given anything here to help us make that decision. And that's okay if they're both true. Uh, Carson points out, though, that this is not really supposed to be our focus here anyway. Listen to what he says. He says, here in John chapter 1, the focus is much less on what this name change means for Peter than on the Jesus who knows people thoroughly and not only sees into them, but so calls them that he makes them what he calls them to be. So you hear how he put that last statement. This is what we see on display in Jesus here. Someone who, is a, his authority is such that he so calls them, uh, in his calling them, he makes them what he calls them to be. This is absolutely what this revelation from Jesus gives us. Think about Peter. What is Peter like in the Gospels? He is anything but a rock. He's no rock. He is impulsive, volatile. He is unreliable. And Jesus stands here and says, that is not the last word on this man, because that is not my last word on this man. I wonder if you've thought lately about the power that we see on display in a place like this, the power that our Lord has and is exercising in our lives to make us, to mold us into the people that he intends us to be. He is the one with the authority that says, you shall be called Cephas, rock and it's done. He says it, and it's true that he will be called Cephas, rock. It's a good reminder to us all of the reason that we have in Christ to be patient and hopeful and submissive to the experiences that God chooses to bring our way. And to the paths that God leads us on and leads us through. Because what he is doing through the course of our lives, powerfully, confidently, is he is molding us. He is molding us. It's going to be forever good and beautiful, and he is using means to accomplish it, and we can trust him. This is where 
and how, I think, we must recite Romans 8, 28 and 29 to ourselves in just that way. Paul wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. This is what he does, and it's always good. It's what he's going to do for Simon as he turns him into Peter, and it will be good. But oh, what do we know about Simon Peter? For this volatile and impulsive Simon, what's he going to have to walk through to become Peter? He will have his greatest hopes dashed, he will forsake the one he loves. He will feel shame at its greatest depths as he stands beside a fire late at night and Christ turns and gazes at him. And when Christ conquers death and escapes the tomb, he will sit again beside a fire this time on a beach with Jesus in John 21. And he'll be comforted and strengthened and charged by his Lord. And through those fire experiences, his heart will be set like stone. And he will live out his days truly as Peter the rock, who can stand before kings. And we hear Jesus' declaration here, before any of that, we sense the power of it rightly. We sense the goodness of it, both for Peter and for all the rest of us. But Jesus also sees in that moment what he is prepared to do to Simon to bring Peter out of him. It's going to hurt. And Jesus loves him and loves us enough to declare it anyway. How are you doing this morning in remembering that the same is true of any and everything that he is choosing to bring your way? It is all means at use in the hands of one who loves you, who loves his glory above all things, and his love for you is such that he plans to sweep you up into the honor of putting his glory on display. But it's going to hurt. How are we doing in remembering the faithfulness and trustworthiness of the Lord who leads and shapes and directs the lives of his people? Now, still four more revelations to get to here. Let's go to verse 30, uh, 43. Read with me, 43 to 45. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, 
We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And stop there. He finds Philip and says to him, follow me. Now, this is obviously not all that he says to Philip. It's not the, it's not the sum total of the discussion that happens between them, and that's clear because by the time Philip goes to Nathanael, he is saying we of himself and the other followers of Jesus. And he is sharing with, uh, with um, uh, excuse me, I've lost my, <laughs> uh, he's sharing in his message uh, something that is massive, isn't it? This is a massive theological conclusion that he is bringing here. As he goes to Nathanael in verse 45, and this is the third revelation here, this time again about Jesus. We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. That kind of a conclusion does not come at the end of two words, follow me. It comes at the end of a very deep conversation. In some ways, it's got some things in common with John the Baptist's declaration. When he said, behold the Lamb of God, we saw then, that's something of a general statement. This is also not, not that specific in the way he words it. You notice that? We have found him of whom Moses and the prophets wrote. Except it is specific in the way of saying, this Jesus is the object of prophecy. And he's clearly getting it, Old Testament prophecy of a very big sort, isn't he? Not some small prophecy. The point is that all the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the first five books, of the law written by Moses, and the prophets. He's saying that they were collectively looking ahead to, promising the sending of someone. And that one is here. And his name is Jesus. And his father's name is Joseph. And he's from the town of Nazareth. We found him. <laughs> it's the sort of claim that's so specific that it really only has one response that can be brought to it, and that is, Prove it. Prove it. Nathaniel will question it a bit, and that's what Philip is going to say. He'll simply say, come and see. He knows, because it was true of him too, he knows that all Nathaniel needs is to encounter Jesus for himself. By the way, I think it's worth uh, just clarifying uh, something about his comment in verse 46 when he asks, when Nathaniel asks, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nazareth is a small city in Galilee, the region of Galilee, uh, as is Cana, where Nathaniel's from. Uh, we don't have any evidence that he's relating to us here some sort of a pervasive bad reputation of Nazareth. It's not known to be an infamous town. It's just a small town. Uh, so he, he's probably doing one of two things. Either he's expressing skepticism that the Messiah could possibly come from an insignificant location, a small town. Or he may be expressing a little bit of small town rivalry here, something that the Texas Panhandle knows plenty about, doesn't it? Small town Cana saying about small town Nazareth, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Maybe that that's what he's doing. But this brings us to the fourth revelation of Christ here in verses 47 and 48. Because Nathanael comes then, on the basis of this invitation, he comes to meet Jesus. Verse 47, Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him 
and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now what exactly is going on here? Well, whether or not we saw a display of supernatural knowledge in verse 42 uh, regarding Peter, that's clearly what we're supposed to be taking from this. Verse 47, John, the author, goes out of the way to point out that Nathanael was still a ways off and was coming toward Jesus when Jesus greets him like he does. He is claiming a knowledge of Nathanael that he's not supposed to have. We can tell from Nathanael's reaction. Can't we? Actually, from both of them. But first, verse 48, Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? This is clearly a designation that stuck in Nathanael and produced this question. And Jesus immediately does it again. (laughs) Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Jesus' revelation concerning himself is this, I am a knower whose knowledge surpasses that of mere men. And given Nathaniel's reaction to each of these, and we're going to read the second one in just a moment, this is obviously something that he knows Jesus could not know. So this fourth revelation concerns the knowledge that Jesus possesses. Now there's something really surprising then in Nathaniel's response. It's even something that Jesus expresses a kind of surprise at. And that's the conclusion that Nathaniel immediately draws from these two statements. Look at verse 49. Here's the fifth revelation of Jesus. So he he hears a description of him from someone who's never met him, an intimate description. He hears a recollection of information from earlier in the day from someone who could not possibly have been there or known that. That's impressive. Well, it was impressive. Here's his reaction. Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. It's a really interesting reaction because what he says about Jesus is true, isn't it? Of course it's true. What seems odd is that he is ready to draw such a strong and dramatic conclusion based on this. He has impressed Nathaniel a great deal, hasn't he? There are some who suggest, this is really just speculation, but I find it very interesting Uh, that there's even another level of what Jesus is doing here uh, that hits at Nathanael's certainty. Some suggest, you can hear the speculation in this, that that perhaps what he was doing there underneath that fig tree was he was sitting, reading, or meditating on the Old Testament account of Jacob. And now here comes Jesus not only telling him where he was, but making dramatic statements, as we'll see, in reference to Jacob. I I I don't only know where you were, what kind of tree you sat under, I knew what you were thinking about then. That would, be, uh, a, that would help me to understand his immediate designation here. You're the son of God. <laughs> but we don't know that that's what Nathaniel was pondering under that fig tree. Notice, though, Jesus' reaction. It implies the same kind of uh, surprise. He does not rebuke Nathaniel in naming him this way. But he does show, he shows in his reaction his awareness 
that most people would need to see a lot more than this in order to believe what Nathanael has just declared. Jesus answered him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. If you already hold me in that esteem after this, Nathaniel, just, just wait. It's interesting, Nathaniel calls him the king of Israel here. It's actually a pretty uncommon designation. It only appears in three other places in the whole New Testament. It's not the most common thing to be said. I wonder if he said that in part because Jesus had just called him an Israelite without deceit. If I am an Israelite, you are the king of Israel. We need to keep thinking about the nature of the surprise with Nathaniel and what he has declared, but let's do it by going into the sixth of these revelations of Jesus. So this last one then, if you're keeping count, is another revelation from Jesus. We see it in verse 51. But I think he's already started to paint this revelation before now. Look at verse 51. And he said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now what is that an allusion to? Any Old Testament story or event that is popping into your mind as you're hearing this description in verse 51? This harkens us back quite intentionally to Genesis chapter 28. Genesis 28:12, we read this, talking about Jacob. So Jacob has just gone and tricked his father Isaac by putting on the, the hairy garments of clothing for his poor blind father. He's tricked him into giving him Esau's blessing. You remember that? He has stolen the blessing of the firstborn right before this. Esau's come now to get it, and they figured out what just happened. And Genesis 28, 12. Oh, pardon me, I'm, I'm getting ahead of us here. Uh, that's coming up, but that's not Genesis 28, 12. Excuse me, let me read this for us. Uh, this is Jacob, but this is Jacob after that's happened, and he has fled. He's fled his brother. Listen to verse 12. And he dreamed, and behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were, listen to this, ascending and descending on it. The vision of the ladder and angels ascending and descending upon it. Jesus is drawing Nathaniel's mind back to the patriarch Jacob as he makes this declaration. In fact, he's drawing all of their minds back to this. As he speaks to Nathaniel, he says to him there, Truly I say to you, you, plural, all of you, you will see the heavens open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. You will all see this. What I want us to understand is that he began this illusion right when Nathanael came up to him in verse 47. Remember what he says in verse 47, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. This is where I was, I was going by mistake there a moment ago. Uh, he, he specifically says of him, this is one without deceit. And that word harkens back to Jacob as well, even to where Jacob got his name. It's Genesis 27, where we have the story of the birthright being stolen. Verse 35, but Isaac said, your brother came with deceit. There's the same word. 
and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Both of these are bringing their minds to the picture of Jacob. Jesus says of Nathanael, Ah, truly an Israelite, an Israelite without deceit. There was a man named William Temple in the mid-20th century who translated it like this, an Israelite without a Jacob. <laughs> ah, an Israelite without a Jacob. It's time to start thinking about Jacob, you young disciples of mine, and it's time to start realizing that something greater than Jacob is here. This is what Jesus is doing. A deceitful, second-born who tricked his way to the birthright? God used it. This is providential. What you need is the true firstborn. That's what you need. You need the true firstborn. You look back and marvel at Jacob, a man who saw, get this, a man who saw a vision of a metaphor of me. But by the time I'm done with you, <laughs> you're impressed by what I just said to you, you'll see greater things than these. You'll see greater things than Jacob saw. Jacob saw a vision of a ladder, of an access between God and man. By the time you're done with me, you will see I am the way. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Right you are, Nathaniel, that I am the Son of God. I am the King of Israel. All of this in 72 hours of human interaction with Jesus. Just consider all that has come to light and been exclaimed and been revealed and that it took 72 hours talking with this man. Now, it's going to take a lot longer than that for them to comprehend the truth and the implications of these revelations. They are going to be remarkably slow to understand, just like you and I can be, remarkably slow to understand. We'll have a lot of sympathy there, but John will make it very evident as we go through his gospel. But just remember, as we move forward in John's gospel, what Jesus' teaching was capable of impressing upon mankind. And through what means? Through simply the means of conversation and interaction. There are no uh, mighty deeds on display here, none. There's supernatural knowledge, clearly, but there are no powerful displays like the kinds of signs we're going to see in this gospel account. We don't need mighty signs and works if the word of God is brought to us. Boy, if only we could hear those words of Jesus, be taught by him, hear pure truth and revelation from him, well, that would be power in our lives, wouldn't it? Power of insight and understanding, power of transformation, power of realigned priority and fidelity. Boy, that would be power. What do you think you're holding in your hands right now?
I trust that what I'm about to say applies to each and every one of us in here. If your life stands in need of clarity, of answers, of peace, of conviction, of courage, I ask you, how much time have you spent with your Bible this week? In it are found the words of life. And that's because it is in this book that the King, the Lord Jesus, is testified to, is borne witness to, is revealed to us. In it we find life. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for feeding us again with your holy word. And I simply pray for all of your people gathered here. Cause us to tremble at your word. Grant it to us, Father, to become more fully convinced that in it you have granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Grant it to us to become convinced that the one to whom you will look is he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at your word. God, we ask that you would make us to tremble more at your word, even as we further rejoice and thank you for your faithfulness in providing us that word. Grant us this heart of faith that only comes from the work of your spirit in us. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.